And thank you all very much for coming out on this rainy evening. I think that Anna is very much um, worth coming out for on, an, on a rainy evening. And there's something wonderfully topical about the fact of us being here um, in the middle of Janet's very beautiful exhibition. Uh, congratulations, Janet. Um, and of course, the topicality is that many of you probably saw The Time Traveller's Guide to Australia on ABC television on Sunday night, which um, featured quite a few sad little animals on trays being pulled out by um, <laughs> um, our, our favourite um, our favorite Tim Flannery, um, bemoaning the, the tragic extinction record in Australia as part of the programme. And also, of course, importantly, Tony Burke is just days away now from uh, making his decision about whether or not to list the koala as a threatened species. So that happens on the 30th of April, a decision that's been deferred and delayed since the 17th of February and which uh, many people are waiting for with a great deal of concern. So Anna, it's great to have you here in the thick of it. <laughs> I guess, Anna, we should start with the koala. Um, so this, this decision is going to be made very soon. Um, the koala is actually an animal that does not feature prominently <laughs> in your essay, which is obviously what we're going to talk about mostly tonight. Um, what's your gut feeling about what Tony Burke is going to do? God. <laughs> um, what well, I mean, this is? has been delayed three times by Peter Garrett, um, this decision, and twice already by Tony. Um, Do you think it's going to go through this time? Uh, potentially, but I'm sure there'll be a lot of loopholes, which is part of the problem always. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on this particular issue, but um, I don't know, there was that really great um, court case that happened in the Land and Environment Court at the start of March, uh, where a developer was fined over $120,000 for clearing hectares of um, bushland. Does anyone know, does anyone remember this? Was this the Brisbane case? No, 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 yeah. it was, was um, southwest of Sydney. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Which, and, and that was, to me, a real coup outside of, you know, this process that's been going on for ages in terms of, that's a good fine, that's a good hefty fine for someone to get for clearing, just brazenly clearing um, protected bushland, which, of course, for cattle. Um, and which will take about 20 years for it to recover. So... Are you an optimist? Oh, it's hard. It's hard when you write so much about it because, I mean, you have to be an optimist. You have to be... And I think Janet talks about it as well in here, is that you have... It's... You don't want to... You don't want to be feel hopeless, but whenever it gets into politics and lobbyists and... Um, economics and the dollar and farmers and cows, you, you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard. Let, let's talk about um, the bigger picture rather than focusing on the koala. We're living in the Anthropocene era mm. and you quote um, a conservationist, a famous conservationist, talking about what he believes the landscape will look like in the era that comes after the Anthropocene, mm. when we will have lost, presumably, more species. Can mm. you talk about the yeah. prediction that he makes, the kind of world that we will be living in and what that will feel like? Yeah, well, Edward O. Wilson, he's a biologist. Um, I don't know if many of you know about him. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his book on the ants, yeah. which is great. Um, but he was this... It really rang true to me what he said, what he felt would happen after when we got this sort of this sort of blowing out of these sort of candles blowing out of all these species all around us, and you know you you've got so many apocalyptic visions and you've got you know comic McCarthy's The Road and you've got you know horror stories about people eating babies and all that kind of stuff and these panic buttons. But he was just he, his sort of theory just felt really true to me and it also made me think that it's already happening which is that we'll be entering the age of loneliness which is being in a world with not we've just us with nothing else but us um and i can't imagine anything more horrifying um, like um just to be in a world with just humans i i think that would really we would really uh we would really stoop 
to the gutter if we didn't have the rest of the world to sort of to reflect on and to reflect back to us and other species to return our gaze. Um, so yeah, the age of loneliness, I really yeah. felt that was something that wasn't so dramatic and, um, you know, trying to scare everyone. Mm. It was just a real truth and a real reality that I think is already happening. Mm. I think it's already happening. When I was preparing for this talk, I was surprised to discover that extinction um, was something that we tended to locate or tended to occur mostly in Australia in the central and south Australian region of the country and that it's actually shifted north. And so there are more species that are currently endangered in the north. Mm. And one of the things that's being... Um, uh, that that's attributed to is a change in fire regimes. Did you look at the issue of changing patterns in fire management when you were writing your essay? Uh, not in the quarterly essay, but there was a lot of it in Into the Woods. Mm. Um, uh, basically because um, Tasmania has quite a um, happy-go-lucky, trigger-happy sort of um, method of burning... burning uh, thousands, hundreds of hectares of bushland um, in order for it to grow back, but really it's in order to make the forest a crop um, so that the right trees grow back, which are the right trees for wood chipping as opposed to an actual forest, which is diverse. Um, so there was a lot of talking about fire and um, there were a lot of excuses that fire is good for the land and, um, um, and you know, there was one... one um, logging boss was driving around, you know, this sort of almost like a quarry now, sort of burnt out bushland, and he was just like, ah, oh, well, the Abos did it. <laughs> it's like, well, I actually don't know if the Aborigines had helicopters and they had um, this sort of gelatine napalm stuff that they flood all over the, um, the, the harvested, harvested forest. Um, I don't think the Aborigines actually did do that. So I think it was the interesting thing is what ha the idea of fire in Australia it does have this really interesting relationship, but it's always it's always manipulated mm. to suit uh, industry or to suit a um, an agenda. An agenda, yeah. Because apparently um, the, the way to manage fire that that um, is less damaging is to, to use something called a mosaic fire mm. regime, so presumably it's a sort of a pattern, obviously like a mosaic, rather than the kind of large expanses that mm. have been burnt more yeah. recently. So is that something that you were interested in? Yeah, I am interested in that. I mean, I didn't um, explore that too. There's a lot of really good explorations of fire, but it's really tricky to understand what's right and what's wrong. And I guess I do worry with things like Burke's decision about koalas. I mean, if he's going to have these specific habitats out, um, uh, you know, are they vulnerable to fire? Are they vulnerable to change? Um, which is part of the problem with this idea that we have at the moment of national parks and um, sort of bottlenecking a wilderness is, um, even though it's an incredible step forward, it is a kind of entrapment because fire does go through these places and creatures need to move from places and, and everything's nomadic and they should be allowed to move beyond these boundaries that we have set for them. So there's all of that as well, which you know, suggests an impermanence of land and that wildfire is something that is gonna happen and is good for it in, in some ways. But if there's nowhere for anything to go, then Oh, it's, interesting. it's interesting that you mentioned that because, again, when I was reading for this, I was very surprised to learn that extinction is something that is happening as much in national parks as outside. Mm -hmm. So an animal having a national park as a habitat mm -hmm. is not a guarantee that that animal is safe. Yeah, no. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, because it's a... It's a it's an idea that we want, that we sort of place onto nature as opposed to um, what nature is, which is nomadic and moves with seasons. And you can't just say, I mean, I study the dingo in the quarterly essay and in Victoria there's places where the dingo is protected, but then it crosses a line and then it becomes vermin. So, but the dingo's not to know this. No. Um, and the... And that idea is just 
it just doesn't work. It's not a natural idea for for ecology or um, especially creatures that hunt seasonally or, or follow follow water flow or anything like that. So in a way it's kind of a sad there's this sort of idea of national parks becoming more like museums mm-hmm. which is you know the last refuge that slowly disintegrates which is why corridors are really important and that's America's been quite um, proactive about that like creating corridors and trying to work out how to um, allow creatures to move from one place to the other. Well, I want to come back to America in a moment, but let's just stay with the dingo. So the dingo at one stage was um, extinct in most of Victoria except in East Gippsland, is that right? Uh, well, there's a lot of bureaucracy around the name, the word dingo. Would you like to explain what the definition is from, from the point of view that you use in your essay? Uh, so the dingo falls into a category of wild dog in um, in Victoria, and I think also in New South Wales as well. Um, and at the moment, there's a bounty in Victoria, which is um, 50 bucks if you bring in a a, a, ma- a dog mask and the back of its um, a strap of its back and its tail. Um, or ten dollars for a fox mask, um, and there's no uh, sort of surveillance or testing or statistical sort of work done alongside that to see what are the what are these dogs actually are if they're dingoes, um, if they're part dingo, or even just if they're living like a dingo, which is another sort of potentially should be able to pass the test if they live like a dingo, which is, means they live in the ecology and they balance, they keep a balance and they're not a, they're a positive influence on the land as opposed to a wild dog, which is usually a dog gone feral from hunting dogs, which I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's no, there's no real research done on that, mostly because they don't want to do that research. That's not something that people want to happen. It's just easier to kill, to say that wild dogs are vermin and they're attacking our livestock. But recently, conservationists conservationists have understood Mm. the importance of these predators in the ecology, these key predators. And this is the really, really, one of the many fascinating things in your essay. Mm. So would you like to talk a little bit about the role of the key predator in relation to more vulnerable animals yeah. further down the chain. Yeah. Well, it's my favourite bit of the essay because it actually has the most hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's this idea of the apex predator is. Um, I mean, I think anyone who sort of is sort of understands a little bit about how nature works, you understand that every part of an ecosystem is important. But more and more biologists are beginning to understand that the apex predator is a key um, part of an ecosystem. And if you take that away, the rest of the ecosystem eventually sort of crumbles. And this was really obvious in Yellowstone National Park in America, where um, after the wolves were exterminated, basically the elk just went crazy. They were like, great, we don't have anything to fear. So we're going to breed completely out of control. We're going to graze everywhere as opposed to grazing in a a location where we could always keep a scout looking for a predator. So they graze along the streams, in the woods, and they basically ate the entire national park and beyond. Um, And so then the streams started collapsing, the beavers went extinct, their their beavers' dams collapsed. the coyotes moved in and they tried to be the top predator, but they couldn't because they were too small. So they ended up driving one creature to extinction as a result and um, taking all the food source away for birds and eagles. So it was kind—it of, was this ridiculous notion of, um, you know, this this atavistic hatred that we had for the top predator that saw wolves being exterminated, which saw the entire place denuded and collapsed, collapsing, and. Um, so then um, it, the biologists um, called to reintroduce the wolves and Yellowstone came back to life. How long did it take for that to happen? It took about 20 years. And the elk stopped breeding so much. They went back 
to where they were, could graze and keep an eye out for a predator. So everything started, the streams came back. It was amazing. Um, and it worked except for humans. Um, the hunters weren't happy. And, they, um, and so they had these stickers on their cars saying, save 100 elk, kill a wolf. Uh, and so then there became all these sort of hunting parties for wolves and they almost, they almost became threatened again. And so there's this ridiculous, we just, it's like humans can't hack having a predator, uh, apex predator, but we don't do a very good job of being the apex predator. <laughs> so we should probably just let them do their job. So what's the analogy for you between the wolf then and the dingo? Um, mm. I read that where, where dingo populations have been stable, for example, the dusky hopping mouse, mm. which I think is one of my favourite named creatures <laughs> in Australia, is doing really well. <laughs> yeah, it's gorgeous. I mean, and there's like, and there's also just sort of shows where it's good intentions can actually lead to true stuff-ups. So there was the mala, um, which is a hare wallaby in the Tanami Desert, and there were two last um, wild populations of the mala, and. In the 70s or the 80s, I'm not entirely can't remember, but um, they were, these researchers, desperate to protect the mala, noticed that every now and then a dingo ate a mala. So they were like, okay, well let's just get rid of all the dingoes. And within a week, foxes moved into one mala colony and ate every single one. And, and the other colony probably would have had the same, except that a wildfire came through and destroyed them. So no more mala. Um, as a result of good intentions, you know, just uh, as a result of trying to protect them and not understanding that the dingo had a crucial role in the ecosystem. And that is, its role is basically suppressing foxes and cats, um, which, you know, is great. It's a, it's a no-brainer except that... Um, they've been persecuted mm. ever since we've gotten here um, for 200 years as, as vermin. And they have as, an image problem. They have an image problem. <laughs> they do have an image problem. Um, yeah, so there's this idea, and that was this really beautiful moment of all these biologists starting to have these studies and realise how important the dingo is and that the predator is not something that has... Its role is not just sort of killing, but its role is presence. Mm -hmm. It has a presence over a landscape and its presence keeps the rest of the landscape in check. And that's really incredible. And you talk and farmers talk about kangaroos being out of control in plague proportions. And you're like, well, that presence of the dingo would um, would have would have had the kangaroos always monitoring their breeding habits. Mm. So there's this incredible similar to the elk and the wolves, like so there's this incredible symbiosis that just wasn't acknowledged and still isn't acknowledged. Yeah. And funny the correspondence is back from my QE, my quarterly essay, and this is what people there's already there's a lot of people who are very anti the dingo. And you can so is that the reaction that you've had to the essay has been primarily focused on that dingo part of the story? Yeah, because it affects us. Yeah. It affects the, the, the rural, rural vote. It affects... And this is why... I'm, but that's why I really like our chapter, that chapter, because there's a beautiful reconciliation moment, which is, you know, it is hard for farmers to come out and check their live their sheep and have them half dead and disemboweled and some of them just sort of chewed their hooves off but not actually killed. It's just, you know, there is really hard for farmers to deal with that. Uh, so, you know, you get this get to this point of can we live side by side with the wild? And then these amazing um, dogs have been brought over for the last 20 years from Europe and they were used a thousand years ago when they had predators in Europe. These are the Marema dogs. The Marema dogs and they're guardian dogs and they are bonded to a flock um, from a young age, and they're very, they're very independent. They don't come, they don't hang out with humans. They basically think they're sheep, and but in order to protect their family, they use the skills of a dog. <laughs> it's incredible. So they protect the livestock, and farmers have. I mean, it's hard work at the start because you've got to really work with these animals. Which you know, that's it's easier just to show throw 1080 out of a plane. But farmers have actually who actually do follow through have 
reported nights sleep every night mm. for years mm. and not a single, A, not a single sheep being mauled, but also sheep's fleece improving because they're less stressed. Mm. Um, this is really a beautiful sort of reconciliation moment. And there's a lot of studies done on, uh, people originally thought that the maremmas were about territory and they wouldn't let the dingoes go through, but now there's a few radio collar studies that are revealing that they are allowed to go through just as long as they behave. <laughs> so it's like, so I love the dingoes it. just need to learn maremma etiquette. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> on, on, on the downside though, Anna, if things get out of kilter, if the balance isn't right, something happens called the trophic cascade. Mm. Tell us what the trophic cascade is. It's a nutritional cascade, <laughs> which is which is basically the the lands the sort of collapse of the landscape. So without an apex predator, is um, you have the herbivores which um, turn out to be quite destructive and eat the landscape away. Um, everything is so interconnected in such a subtle way. Why does the eradication of foxes um, uh, mean the increase in feral cats? Mm, yeah, because I mean they're meso predators. Which is all these, I love these words, they're meso predators. Explain. Explain. <laughs> which means they're not top predators. They're sort of middle-sized predators. They don't have um, so they don't have the strength to pull down big things, and they don't. They have a certain presence, but not the large-scale presence. Mm -hmm. So without foxes, obviously the next the next predator that has reasonable size and a reasonable hunting ability is the cat. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know what happens after the cat. <laughs> we don't want to go there. No. <laughs> One of the moments in the essay when you get very excited is uh, when someone says to you that they're hoping to um, see the day when the Tasmanian devil appears on the Australian mainland. <laughs> yeah. Never mind is healthy enough to be able to reclaim its actual territory in Tasmania. Mm, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the presence of the devil on, on yeah. the mainland? Because I was very surprised. Yeah, I love that. And he was... I was like, it's a game changer. It's amazing. But it's... Because the Tasmanian devil in the, um, Tasmania, as everyone probably knows, is suffering the tumour and it's... 90% of its population is now gone. Um, and, and that tumour is, in, in terms of the endangered status now of that devil, no one knows the cause of that, and that's not something that, that we no. have to take the blame for, is it? Uh, or is it? Of course, it, of course it's us, come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what could it be? Uh, this, this, uh, it's us. Is it? I'm sure it is. Okay. I, mean, I, mean, it's probably, I mean, there's so many... I mean, no one knows for sure, and there's so many theories, but if you look at the... I mean, just the, the, the constant explosions of devil population and then, and, then and then strangulation of its population. It went through bounty hunting for a while and then it went through poisoning for a while and then everything else was poisoned and the devil population exploded. But the problem was that it was eating carcasses that were poisoned. Um, Okay. I'm sure there's an accumulated cancerous thing going on right. there. But, I mean, I wouldn't know. I'm not an expert, but I've spoke to a lot of people and there does seem to be that idea of an accumulated um, effect mm -hmm. that, can, that has brought this problem to a head. Stress being involved? Sorry. Stress? Um, it's probably involved in everything. Well, I mean, they, 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 mm. yeah, I mean, but, but they actually, I mean, they had a moment of absolutely no stress because there was just piles and piles of um, animals that had been killed with strychnine. So they had like feasts, basically, like um, piles of carcasses for for about 30, 20, 20 odd years. Except that the carcasses, I mean, I'm sure if you eat that many carcasses mm. that have been poisoned, I'm sure that isn't that good. Um, so when, when were they on the mainland anyway? When did we yeah. have them here? Well, I mean, the dingo, the dingo is thought, I mean, there's oh, it's a lot of controversy mm. because it's been a while. Between 12,000 or 5,000 years, the dingo came over and would have driven the Tasmanian tiger and the devil. Mm -hmm. Oh, not the Tasmanian tiger. Yeah, they yeah, would have driven those guys south 
and then eventually just driven them out. Mm-hmm. So the dingo would have bullied its way around. It was a better hunter, mm-hmm. the dingo, and it also, the dingo was more intuitive to humans, so it knew how to hunt alongside humans. It knew to follow humans to get food and vice versa. So, I'd, and Tasmanian tigers weren't apparently very extrovert. <laughs> extrovert, I love that idea. <laughs> An extrovert tiger. <laughs> you know, they didn't, you know, they didn't have that sort of instinct of, of um, that, that relationship with humans that dingoes had. But devils, what's their temperament? Are they extroverts? Would you call a devil an extrovert? I don't know, it is funny. Um, no, I'd call them some wild gnashing creature that is very fun at a dinner party. <laughs> but then goes in back into itself in the morning. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know exactly how the devil became no longer on... on the mainland, but it's it's theorised to be dingoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this person's mission is to see these reinstated. Yeah. Well, I mean, the problem with Tasmania is now facing this really bad moment now of prior to the devil tumour, cats couldn't get a foothold in Tasmania, but now they are. So that's really potentially really damaging to all of Tasmania's. One of the things I noticed, though, that you don't mention in this essay, which is quite surprising, is one of these animals that is a, is a pest that, that decimates the habitat for, for um, our natural endemic species is the cane toad. And the cane toad, of course, in the Northern Territory mm. is threatening a lot of species, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it is. Well, how did you decide which animals you would look at, <laughs> at, at in, this, in this section of the essay? Um, time. I only had a certain amount of time. I've only had a certain amount of energy. Um, I mean, I've got a lot of emails going, that's all very good what you wrote, but what about this? <laughs> what about this? Yeah, I wanted to put my hand up for the bilby because that's my <laughs> favourite creature, but Anna said, don't ask me about the bilby. <laughs> I'll just reply, you know what, you should write about the bilby. <laughs> I mean, you kind of... I mean, you have, you have to weigh it up, and I also had to was trying to reflect our behaviours not just look at mm. um, not just look at animals. I was trying to also look at animals and us. So I sort of had to, and then you know the Indonesian abattoirs was a really obvious case study to run with because mm. there was so much. I mean, it was the most passionate Australia has been um, for years. Mm. Um, Did you find that telling in itself? Were you surprised at the intensity of public reaction to that footage when it was first shown? Uh, no, I think it's admirable. I think it's admirable that Australians felt that that much empathy. Um, it's not to say that our empathy isn't entirely inconsistent and entirely hypocritical, mm. but I do think it's. Ad- I do admire it. I do think we're at it. I mean, we're at a good point, obviously, where we could. We can start to have empathy and we can start to understand that, you know, these creatures are sentient and they're subjects. But um, what I found really interesting about the Four Corners footage and Australia's reaction to it was, um, is that we have these cows, we have um, livestock and we have an industry that treats them like objects. And so do we, we treat Mm -hmm. them, that's what, you know, the consumers, we do, they're objects. And so this footage was so um, striking because the objects became subjects. They mm. responded. They were bellowing and they were became sentient and mm. they were suffering. What I was horror kind of found really interesting was that the reaction was, oh shit, how can we quickly make them objects again? So that we can keep eating them. Yeah, which is how can we humanely kill them? We need to introduce stunning mm. so that they can quickly become objects again. Mm. It wasn't, oh, they're subjects, and that was, you know, the door was open and they became subjects. It was, shit, how do we close that door and quickly make them objects again? Mm. So, and it's interesting that you mentioned the fact that Switzerland recently changed the definition of what an animal is. Hasn't yeah. Happened so, yeah. do you want to just explain that? Um, yeah, but then the entire constitution had to be rewritten and so now it's in a kind of limbo. Oh. <laughs> so it's now between a being and a thing. Right, so it's, but it's changed in Switzerland, hasn't yeah. it, an animal, from being a thing to, to a being. being. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but this is, I mean, this is, this is, 
the um, complete uh, sort of myth that we all keep telling ourselves is that, well, if they're not, if they're objects, then why do we have welfare legislation? Um, why? So obviously they're not objects. But then we can't quite come to the idea that they're beings, mm. because then, then that would require a whole new sort of ethical palette. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just go back to extinction, because that is ostensibly our subject for the <laughs> evening. Um, I want you to tell me whether there is any good news on the horizon. We know that there are so many species that are on the brink that are either vulnerable, endangered, or they're on the critical list. Is there anything that we've just brought back from the brink? Is there anything where you're seeing some real progress being made in terms of a more enlightened approach to the issue of extinction? Well, I guess the predators, the apex predator, is a really good example of that. There is this, um, there is an understanding and also a lot of research being done to back up the idea that, that a predator is important. Mm. Um, but again, that, that involves humans looking at themselves and asking if we can live alongside predators. Um, can, we, can we do that? Can we rein in our own behaviour? Can we, um, you know, when we go camping and we see a dingo, can we not throw a chop to it or a sandwich? Can we not bring, make, the, make, you know, this relationship a dangerous relationship so that they start seeing humans and associating them with food. So can we be can we be smart enough and mature enough to handle a relationship with a predator? Mm -hmm. I think that would be interesting. Um, and you know, plus plus you've got or you know you've got the numerous letters I have received about you know the dingoes are vermin and they ruin farmers' lives and all that kind of stuff. So can we change that attitude? So that would really have to begin in school. That would be a major public education campaign. Yeah, it? yeah, definitely. Um, although I'm not sure. I mean, I feel like I learnt a lot of things in school and then when I went out into real life, I realised it didn't really... People didn't actually really think like that. I mean, it's more... I guess it's more teaching, not just teaching a... Not just teaching slogans like, you know, recycling is good, all that kind of stuff, but also to teaching complexity and um, nuances mm. Mm. to relationships and that it's not straightforward. Who are the heroes at the moment in Australia, the kind of unsung heroes that we should know more about? We know about Tim Flannery, obviously. Mm. We, so who, are, who are the people that you encountered in the course of writing about this that you think we should, this, this very educated, very committed group of people should know about, that we don't know about? Mm. Well, was that interesting? I noticed it in um, Janet's exhibition that there's sort of like, you've got all these... Like there's this frailty and then there's the tubes and this sense of um, vulnerability to all the, these creatures that are in this exhibition and almost to a point of hopelessness. And then there's the, your images of the um, animals being with the car, plaster casts or being learnt, learning how to walk again and um, Joey's being in rehab. and Like that was probably... They, those were the moments in Into the Woods and in the QE where you just like... God, this is why humans are good. Like, this is actually a moment of, like, no other animal sort of goes, I'm going to make a splint for this, for this foreign species and I'm going <laughs> to put it there and I'm going to make it wrap it up and then I'm going to feed you little, little things with droppers every day. No other species does that. We do that. And that's incredible. Um, I met a couple in Tasmania who, like, rescued a wombat and brought it back to health and then it then returned it to the bush. Um, they lived in the bush, so they just sort of, you know, let it slowly find its way out there. And then two years later, the wombat returned with a limp. And he was like, and just was like, can you fix me up? <laughs> so they did. And then he left. So there's just like, no other animal would think like, oh, I'm just going to go over to the dingo den and maybe he can fix me up. Like, that's, I mean, that is like a beautiful moment of, that's a human moment that we do mm. and that we do think about other species and we are interested in the gaze and we are interested in... Um, 
I mean, no other animal sleeps, potentially sleeps with another animal on their bed, like a dog or a cat. Mm. Or, like, we do have... We do have something good and we do have something good to offer. But it's, so I would say probably people with sanctuaries, people who, um, for the people who, whose names we don't know, we're never not know. in the media. You see them on a yellow, on a yellow um, sign and it's, you know, wildlife and it called this number 1-800 yeah. or something. Yeah. You know, you'll never know them. Yeah. yeah. Quite, quiet, quiet yeah. achievers in, mm. in that field. Yeah. Um, just just before I hand over to the audience, because I'm sure you've got questions for Anna, I just want to ask you as well, Anna, about the response to this extraordinary book. It is so brave. It's so fair. I think it's an extraordinary, extraordinary piece of journalism and reportage. You've taken me so deep into this issue, which I thought I knew a bit about, but as it turned out, you know, I got most of it kind of wrong or I'd romanticise the issue or, you know, sentiment does play a lot in our approach to animals and our approach to the environment. This is just such a rigorous, rigorous, extraordinary piece of writing. What's the reaction been to the book mm. from, the, from the players, not, not from readers? From the players, yeah. You know what, it's really interesting and it's a bit of a downer, but... Um... <laughs> Don't leave us on a low note. But um, people in the green movement haven't been happy. Oh. And I think that's really interesting. And I think it says a lot. Because... Because that's the part of the point of this book was to get people out of their trenches. Mm. Um, was for... Um, <coughs> the two opposing sides down there to be not so antagonistic towards each other, to understand that there are, there are puppeteers behind them, um, that there are things that are beyond their control and there is history that they haven't been aware of that have brought them all to this sort of fiery, standoffy position. Um, and... Yeah, and I think the, there's, I mean, not the, the, not the people who are really core people in the green movement. They sort of understood that there was complexity. Yes. And they also understood that they had flaws, which I, you know, I didn't shy away from showing the flaws of some activists who I think probably did more damage to the issue than, um, than not. So, I mean, I had one logger ringing me up and he's like, oh, I love that I'm in this book. <laughs> Great. I don't think he read the whole book, but he probably just read the bits that he was in. We gave him 15 minutes of fame and he's happy. Totally. And I mean, I've had um, old, like one old timer logger who was, he's 89, and he um, emailed me and he was like, I, I, he was from, he's from Queensland, and he was like, I didn't realise there was so much complexity down there. I wasn't aware. I just assumed it was um, loggers versus greenies. And so what I reveal in there is that the loggers are actually angry at the wrong person, at the wrong movement. They need to be, they need to be angry at um, the wood chipping industry because mm. back in the 60s and the 70s, um, logging was vastly changed from um, to being quite a uh, sustainable activity for people to understand that you need to take down the mature trees and you leave the other ones to stay up. It was taken over by the wood chipping industry, which was about clear felling. Um, so, and a lot of current loggers don't understand, don't know that history, and they've been sort of revved up and psyched up to, to direct their anger at the greenies, mm -hmm. um, where actually all the job losses and most of the, um, all the losses are actually can be attributed to wood chipping, not environmentalism. Mm -hmm. So, Basically, I revealed how misdirected their anger is. So a lot of old-timer loggers um, emailed me and wrote to me and said that, thank you, they didn't realise that. They had, didn't realise, but when they look back on it, yeah, of course, that's, that's, the, that's the, the run that, that mm. ruined us. It wasn't people fighting for a little bit of protection here and there and there. It was an industry that was voracious mm. and actually required more machines than men. So... Funnily enough, 
the loggers seem to like me a bit better. <laughs> I don't know why. You've got a whole lot, lot of new friends, but not, not amongst the greenies. Yeah, well, I mean, you can't please everyone, no. you know. And some people just, they just only want the romantic view. Um, and I, I'm just not able to do that. No. Yeah. Thank goodness you're not. <laughs> okay, I'm sure you've got questions for Anna, so if you do, please take this opportunity. Jean, I'm sure you've no, got a question. No, I'm not talking about one for this Janet, you must you must have a question. You must have a question. Well, actually, I'd like to ask Janet. You have to have the mask because otherwise they can't have a question. Um, and the thank you for your essay, um, and thank you for it being in such a major, wonderful magazine that normally has old man politics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this is one of the problems with this whole issue of extinction, the Anthropocene, the whole issue of the death of animals. It's, it's not publicly known because no one talks about it. Mm. We do start to talk much more about welfare, you know, thanks to Voiceless and, mm. you know, issues like Animals Australia. It's becoming much more public, that issue. But no one realises that in the wild, the animals, the cruelty of, of, of loss of habitat. And what does that really mean to, to animals? They lose their homes. Mm. And that was the most fascinating thing for me in my research, is to find those sanctuaries of animals rescued because, you know, they'd been, the, they'd, you know, lost their homes, basically. Yeah. And they'll be cared for and nurtured in these little, in these sanctuaries. But then they're put back out into the wild, but there is no wild mm. for them anymore. And I think people don't know that. We just, and I think that's why your essay is so important, because it's in a very public space mm -hmm. that a lot of people read, a lot of intelligent people, thank heavens, read, because no, no one wants to read the newspapers anymore. <laughs> so I just wish we had more of this discussion out there. Mm -hmm. um, because I have had that response for people coming to the show, that they would have no idea, you know, about things like that. Yeah. And, you know, even about the, you know, the plight of the dingo, and, you know. So I guess what I want to ask you is, um, do you, have you, having taken this on, and obviously it's been a long um, thing in your career working with these issues and everything, do you feel it's something that you feel more armed with, there's much more that you want to say, that you feel that it's sort of, it seems to me this is a very gathering concern. It's becoming really mm. political. Mm. And I think that's really exciting. I mean, you know, we've heard it said before that animals are where slaves were not so long ago, mm. the objects. And so um, do you feel that? Have you had, do you feel that personally, that there's more you want to write, that there's more? Because you've, you've got a position to be able to do it publicly. So yeah. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, I do. I, it definitely feels like there's a zeitgeist out there and it is um, a rolling, it is sort of gathering momentum. Mm. Uh, at the same time, when you do apply yourself to a big project and you do a lot of research, you do also have to look at all those places where there is no momentum and you do sort of yeah. get a sense of the huge obstacles that yeah. um, we face. Uh, uh, there definitely is, of course, more to be written. Yeah. And more yeah. to be written by me, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think it's also a matter of craft as well, though. I think mm. that people... Um, I think it's a matter of how it is written as well that needs to be sort of tackled. Yeah. I think well, how it's expressed or how documentaries are made, I think they need to be less one-sided. Yeah. Um, and I think there needs to be a real um, understanding and a sympathy mm. for people who are caught in the middle and, mm. um, um, you know, that, and as frustrating as people are who refuse to change their habits and don't want to change, there needs to be much more um, support mm. to, to sort of 
to these sort of communities that are stuck in the middle, to the usually a rural community. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that if, if people approach the story in that way, I think a lot more people will be reading it and listening and understanding and potentially asking questions that they haven't asked before. I think at the moment a lot of people just write for the converted. Mm, um, yeah. And I think that's just kind of useless. And that's where your, your fairness and your even-handedness in this is really, it's extraordinary that you manage to do it on a subject which is such a heated subject and which has polarised people so completely already. Yeah. Um, but you do give the other side you know, a chance and yeah. the benefit of the doubt yeah. more than most people who would come to this subject with a very clearly stated agenda, yeah. which was, you know, of a political ideology. Mm. Is there another question? Yeah. Oh, do you want to just wait? Because I know you're in the front row, but have the microphone anyway. Yes, absolutely. Vis-a-vis um, -vis loss of habitat, um, as you were speaking, I was just wondering um, who can possibly be the piggy in the middle, in just saying, um, in regards to the possible mining that's going to occur in the Tarkeen. Um, Tony Burke, I think, is going to be the person who's going to decide on that in the near future. Um, that would be a huge loss of habitat. I mean, it's such a huge area, pristine. The problem with Tasmania is that it's so poor. So, so poor. It's and it's this state that has such a small population um, and has really low levels of education and, and a real poverty that I don't think the rest of Australia understands. And I think, I mean, I don't think, and I'm not, I'm not really, I mean, I always have a position at the end. I do always come to a position, but I think Tasmania is a basket case, and in a sense, um, an economic basket case, and there is this constantly, um, people, um, is trying to constantly find an income for itself, hence it's always got these sort of really um, third world industries, sort of wood chips and mining and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and then you have the other sort of more gentrified population saying, well, we can just be, have cottage industries and you can come down and you can buy some ricotta and then you can go home. <laughs> you know, and they don't mix. Those two just don't mix. And um, from, for the people on that side with these sort of third world industries, a lot of them don't finish school. They don't finish, they leave school at 14, 15. That's the going age rate for teenagers in Tasmania. It's um, second to NT. So there's this incredible social lack there that is... Um, it's not recognised. It's not recognised. You really get that picture. You get a picture of the society as being very, very... But are they less educated than people elsewhere in Australia? I mean, if you enter the number of kids who left school at 14, uh, which... You know, you can't leave school earlier than that. Mm. So if you had to compare that with, uh, I don't know, Victoria or New South Wales, is it significantly different? Well, Are there statistics in this and obviously that doesn't mean therefore it's okay to do this. Or no, no, it's exactly. okay. But I'm just asking, that was news to me, mm. that in Tasmania it was different, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a smaller population, everybody knows that. Mm. But I didn't even know they were economically so. That's because you go to Mona, and at Mona, everything. Tiny, I had to keep telling myself when I was writing, there's only 500,000 people on the yes. island. And so when you do roll out these things where you say um, 800 jobs, I mean, you kind of roll your eyes on jobs. But in Tasmania, you go, 800 jobs, it makes a difference. So you do have these factors that come into play down there that don't seem to come into play in the mainland conversation about Tasmania. So... 
Yeah, I mean, obviously you, you don't want the mining in Tarkan, but I feel like it's the story is still told as if it's, you know, destroyer and pristine beauty. Yeah. It's still told as that, whereas there needs to be sort of needs to be more nuance to the, the issues. There needs to be more characters who are. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's there's always a lot of greed, and the distribution of wealth will be completely unequal, of course. But there are people who think they might get something out of this, or they might have a job, or you know. And then there are politicians who want to be voted in again. Um, Did, are you a member of Get Up? Yeah. So you would have seen that yesterday, I think there was a message from Get Up to say that, in fact, Tony Burke is going to be visiting the Tarkine yeah. with members of Get Up shortly. Drag. Drag. <laughs> Kicking and screaming through the forest. So that'll be interesting. Is there another question from anyone in the audience? Yes. We'll just pass the microphone to you. Um, I was really happy, actually, to hear that dimension and the complexity of, you know, the dimension of class, mm -hmm. um, which is often left out of the debate, because mm -hmm. I think um, to say that the question of conservation is merely an ethical shift from, yeah. you know, object to subject mm -hmm. doesn't quite capture it, because, you know, there are plenty of farmers who know their animals mm -hmm. um, by, you know, looking at them mm -hmm. um, and their different temperaments, but still send them to market. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, I think of my mother, um, sort of without a tear, like sending these two hand-reared potty calves off to market and mm. me going, how could you? <laughs> you know, but she could because she wants the money. So yeah. um, I think um, what would we have people do, you know, if not um, what they've done for generation upon generation yeah. um, and particularly in a place like Tasmania where... Um, you know, as you recognise, like that, that is what people know how to do and what's passed on. So um, I think that sort of poses a deeper political question for the Australian um, polity mm, yeah. of, well, what are we about and how, how will we generate a living? I'm not in my element in, in this conversation because I, I don't follow it in detail. But I remember a time in South Africa growing up where people said if the Africans were given alcohol, the entire country would fall apart. We also remember, uh, not uh, physically ourselves, but through literature and film and uh, historical accounts, a time and know about a time when uh, the southern part of America, uh, people said categorically with statistics and everything they could muster to prove it, that without uh, slaves, the entire economy would collapse. Mm -hmm. Now, the economy didn't collapse. Some people suffered, mm -hmm. and uh, alcohol was provided to Africans in South Africa, and life continued just as it had done the day before. So people, it's not to say, and I'm not uh, talking individually about your family or anybody else's family, but change comes and change always affects someone and um, it, 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 we need to change, we need to evolve as human beings um, the, this, we haven't gone into that area tonight and Brown's kept deliberately silent but I mean looking at that ABC footage is what people at Voiceless look at every day all over. People who hoard dogs, who hold them in tiny cages for no reason other than to, I don't know, own them or who don't ever clean the cages. The dogs have rotting sores and pus pouring out of them. There are the most horrific incidences of cruelty. Some of it is economically driven, some of it is mental health, uh, you know, re relates to mental health. But basically, we, I don't think as human beings, with the intelligence we've developed and the technology and the uh, sort of communication channels that we have, that we can say we don't know, and if we do know, we can't act because how will it affect? We know it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows it's wrong. It's just what one does about it. Do you eat meat? Do you only eat organic meat? Do you go as far as eating fish? You know, there are just so many actions you can take. But I don't think anybody today can say that animals are not sentient beings with any kind of conviction and therefore that cruelty, whether it's loss of habitat or whether it's uh, chickens confined in an A4 size cage or pregnant sows who have to lie on their side with their 
sours, uh, you know, drinking milk from them. No one can surely stand up and say it's loss of jobs, therefore it's okay. I, I don't, I can't see how anyone can make a jump like that. Whoever loses their job. <clears throat> I'm not disagreeing with you. What, I, what I'm saying, I'm not resisting the change. What I'm saying is if we believe in the change, we need to be asking a deeper question about the um, your point about someone suffers, but it's not right that the most disadvantaged and poorest already should bear the brunt, um, or that large industry be allowed to shift to another form. Awareness, acknowledgement. Yeah. Once there's acknowledgement of these things, then you can find ways forward, and different people will find their own pathways. You know. And I guess that's the point that I was making into the woods is that, I mean, that's not. It's. To understand those disadvantages is, I think it's really important. Yeah. And it's also, but also really important to, for the people who are disadvantaged to understand why they're disadvantaged and to direct their anger, anger and dilemma accordingly. Mm -hmm. And I think in Tasmania, they've, um, a lot of people have been told the wrong things and have been fueled um, with spite and anger and um, aggression in the wrong direction without, while, while someone's behind them taking everything they have, they've got. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably where a lack of under, um, education comes in down there, which is really, which, I mean, education doesn't, it's not about learning facts and stats, but it's about understand, learning complexity. Um, that, and if you don't, if you're not interested in it, if, you don't, if your family you know, encourages you to leave school, then chances are you're encouraged to believe what they believe and, and not ask your own questions. So down there you've got um, a significant part of the population that has been completely misdirected um, and can't ask their own questions and don't know how to ask those questions. Um, and I want to give people a chance to um, come upstairs and chat with you when they buy your wonderful book. Um, but before we do that, is there anything about your own behaviour that as a result of either writing this book or writing this fantastic essay has changed in, in relation to some of the issues that you've been mm -hmm. confronted with yourself because you, you put yourself really on the line. You take yourself right mm -hmm. out of your comfort zone. Yeah. That's what I really admire about you. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. I've been a vegetarian for 17 years, but I mean, and I had to lie to people when they were giving me access. So like, were you a vegetarian? Because I knew that if I said yes, they'll be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's funny because I'm not a judgmental vegetarian. Like, I'm, I, I'm not. I mean, I have friends who. I mean, I, I'm not. I live in the world. You know, I'm, I'm aware that there are differences, um, and I think that. Um, in terms of covering the Indonesian abattoir with a man who asked me the question if I was a vegetarian and then I said no and he let me in. I think I gave him the fairest coverage out of everyone. So um, there's, this, there's a whole lot of... So my personal choices I do kind of keep quite close to my chest when I do the stories because mm -hmm. people think that um, an ideology and potentially an antagonism and a sense of moralism go with that. But that doesn't... I'm not judging them, it's just my own choices. So, I mean, I've been a vegetarian for 17 years. Um, I try to do everything I can possibly do. I don't use tissues, I use a hanky. <laughs> um, I don't print out my work, all that kind of stuff. Um, when I teach writing, I tell everyone not to print it out. They're not good enough for printouts yet. <laughs> so, you know, there's each... each yeah, I, it's I, about little steps, isn't it? It's about making yeah. little incremental changes rather yeah. than you know something that's impossible to stick to. Yeah, and I'm, I think my it. goal is more to not write for people who are already making, who are already aware, and sort of doing the things that they can possibly do. Um, but it's more just. I mean, I have emails from people saying, "Well, I think veganism is the only way, and this is why so and so and so." And it's just like, that's fine, but I'm not talking to you. Mm. I'm trying to talk to someone who's actually still buying caged eggs. You know, so it's... It's, it's gradual, it's yeah, incremental. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's... And I think it's hard as well, uh, like, when you have your individual choices and 
Um, I had one woman barrel me up and she was so intense about wanting to know what my diet was that I was decided I didn't want to tell her. And, and I was like, I'm not telling you, even though my diet is perfectly, like, ethical. Um, and then and she was like, but isn't it about that? And I said, well, it is about individual choices, but I think it's also about, um, in a way, it's it's... it's it's tough and it's not fair on it just being the individual choice and the consumer constantly having to find out if there's mm -hmm. palm oil in something. Mm -hmm. There needs to be regulatory changes and there needs to be a change in, in the mindset of governance. And um, I, mean, it's, I mean, we shouldn't have to choose between caged eggs and free-range eggs. And now we have the problem that free-range is actually not really true anyway. Um, so that's... So, I mean, I'm all for making individual changes, but I don't actually think it's enough. I think it's, it needs to be taken to the top. And it shouldn't... I mean, I, just, I, know, there's a big, I know there's a lot to be said for the power of choice and all that kind of thing, but, I mean, people will always choose the cheaper option. Yeah. They will always choose yeah. the cheaper option. And I don't think that's fair. So... Mm. It's a very thought-provoking note on which to end. Please join me in thanking Anna Klein. <laughs>